Hello and welcome to Headful, the science podcast for the passionately curious and the curiously passionate. I'm your host, Sean Cook, and today we're getting a headful of Sarah Mishik, a researcher from San Diego. Ever wonder about metagenomics? Ever heard of metagenomics? Today, Sarah's going to tell us all about that. She's also going to tell us about her company, Argonox, who's doing deep sea exploration of microbiomes all over the world, looking for little critters living in remarkable places that just might change the world. Then in our science gossip segment, Sarah and I go off the rails for a moment and discuss ethics and research, and I give my favorite anthill analogy. It's all coming up right here on Headful Science. Let's do this. Let's get a headful of Sarah Mishik. Who are you and what do you do? Okay. My name is Sarah Mishik. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Argonox. And what we do is early stage small molecule discovery from microbes existing in extreme ocean environments. So we go to places like the deep sea, hydrothermal vents, Arctic environments, and we look for what we call extremophilic microbes. And we then try to isolate really unique compounds that have a wide range of commercial applications. Wow, that that was a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I, I might ask you to to re- repeat all that. Okay, sure, but, I can. But do that was that's amazing, and and so yeah, so let's break that down. So, uh, say that again. Okay, so we do <laughs> early stage small molecule. Small molecule. All right, let's stop right there. Okay. So what is small molecule? I thought it was microbes and bacteria and viruses. So microbes specifically mm-hmm. is what we focus on microbes as a result of their biochemical processes and just generally as a result of the environments in which they live, Mm -hmm. they produce a variety of chemicals, Mm -hmm. right? So we have things that we call secondary metabolites, Mm -hmm. which um, are basically a byproduct of their biochemical processes, okay? So they're they're not used for survival in any means. Oftentimes, um, they're used as protection mechanisms, um, as cell signaling. So it's not waste, it's not even like microbe poop, it's... No, yes. These are like... um, some sort of poison or something that, they're, that they're trying to deter it could other very microbes? Well be. Absolutely. Oh. Is that always the case or is it sometimes Not necessarily. Waste? Oh. Not necessarily. Sometimes they could be considered non-essential compounds, mm-hmm. um, which then still have activity for us as humans. Mm-hmm. But so these, we call them secondary metabolites. And so they're non-essential for survival of the organism. Mm-hmm. But these are considered small molecules. So we have... Um, proteins, we have enzymes, and we have small molecules that tend to act as secondary metabolites, right? So that's usually where we get those from. Okay. So we focus not only on these small molecules, but also proteins such as enzymes, because enzymes are really essential in dictating biochemical processes, right? And they're really unique depending on where these microbes live, in what environment they're existing, um, environmental stressors, predation, things like that. So they're really important and oftentimes such a high value target for scientists because they're so, they have a huge variety of purposes and tend to exist under really, really specific environments and circumstances. So like for us, Mm -hmm. if we didn't, if our pH changed inside our body, Mm -hmm. 
our biochemical processes would change because the enzymes can only function under a certain set of pHs. Mm -hmm. So the second that pH changes, the enzymes that are in charge of certain functions in our body would also change. So the rate of reaction would change, things of that nature. Does that make sense? Oh, of course, yeah. So all of that makes sense. It sounds, yes, so enzymes are important in, in the biome. They're important inside of us. The thing that, that, and what got me excited when, when I, when you start telling me what you do and the question that I kind of, whenever I hear about this type of work, um, is all the one question that I keep thinking of is, um, how, how do we take, so you go out into the, into the environment, you do, and you do metagenomic, mm-hmm. uh, uh, discovery is that yeah. is that the right phraseology? Yes. Okay. So we go out into these extreme ocean environments and we use um, collection equipment like ROVs, which mm-hmm. are remotely operated vehicles, mm-hmm. to send down into these extreme environments. We physically collect environmental samples mm-hmm. and then we take them back to lab. So going from sample to gene to yeah. metagenome yeah. Um, is a little bit of a process, right? Yes. And metagenome, real quick, that that refers, I mean, that sounds like metadata and genomic metadata or something like that. Is that sort of, I mean, is that what it means? Right. So um, metagenome refers to the collective genome of microbes existing in an environmental sample. Oh, okay. Does that make sense? Collective. I think so. Um, So... If, if I remember correctly from my from my extensive mm-hmm. Wikipedia research, <laughs> if the, as the 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 example would be, you're taking a bucket of seawater, and then you're you're analyzing all of you're you're trying to yes. sequence all of the DNA of all the right. billions of of organisms that are in that in that bucket, right. and you're getting an understanding of like the ratios of them or so. so Yeah. So, um, the way that it's described as a definition, I guess, is the direct analysis of, um, a genome within a microbial community Mm -hmm. without the need for traditional culturing techniques. Okay. So back in the, in the olden days, or just sometimes still today, what is done is Mm -hmm. you would take like sediment, for example, Mm -hmm. and then you would have to isolate the microbes individually using culturing techniques such as pure plating on um, agar plates and things of that nature, fermentation, Mm -hmm. which is super expensive. It's a really long process. It's Mm -hmm. really, really difficult to isolate the majority of the diversity that exists doing it that method. So Mm -hmm. the advent of metagenomics is the idea that let's bypass that, right? And let's Mm -hmm. directly sample the genetic information of these mixed populations Mm -hmm. that exists within an environmental sample. Gotcha. And is is the point there... Is the point there to to get specific samples or a broad understanding of everything that's there? Or is it the ratios of, oh, there's lots of this type of bacteria and not so much this or what? Yeah, so definitely when you do um, a metagenomic analysis, we call this, what you're talking about is called shotgun um, metagenomics. Oh, okay. Okay, so um, shotgun metagenomics is, it allows us to fully sequence the, obviously, the microbial genomes that exist in these communities, and it gives us the who, so Mm. what is, what what microbes are there, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then what they are doing. So what are they producing? What's their function within these communities? Can I interpret yeah, that right there? What are they doing in these communities? How how does sequencing, how does that inform that? How do you figure that out? I can see, I can understand you're saying you're sequencing 
you're saying these are these are the organisms that are here mm -hmm. based on their genetic signatures. Mm -hmm. We also found these compounds that these that we think are coming from these organisms, something like that. But what, how did, do you? It sounds like you can also get some sort of interaction yeah. in your understanding how what the things are actually what's occurring. How are you? That's almost like behavior, right? Right. So when we talk about how, or I guess what the microbes are doing mm -hmm. and how they interact to sustain their ecological niche, so mm -hmm. to speak, mm -hmm. we're speaking about chemical interactions, right? Mm -hmm. So when we look at DNA, or so the entire genome of a microbe, mm -hmm. that's essentially, those are the, the blueprints, right? The code that allow them to behave in the way, the way in which they do in their, in their environment, mm -hmm. right? So the code that is encoded in the in the DNA mm -hmm. gives us a hint about what genes are existing. So like what genes encode what compounds, what pathways exist. And these pathways give us indications as to, okay, so let's take the cone snail for example. Okay. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of the cone snail? No, you mentioned that you, you mentioned that uh, the other day uh, in, in, a, in an email. Yeah. So tell me about that. Yeah. So the cone snail is really interesting because the cone snail is a predatory snail, mm -hmm. right? And one of the things that they do is they um, they have a, um, what's it called, a harpoon that they harpoon their quote-unquote victims with. Do they shoot the harpoon out and it, it's like a barbed yeah, uh, exactly. protrusion and it grabs them and they, they reel it back in? Okay, I think I've seen that. And it has a toxin, right? Oh. And this toxin paralyzes their victim mm. before ultimately causing them to pass away mm -hmm. so then they can consume right. whatever they're eating, yeah. right? So this genome would indicate that sort of behavior, right? As So we have certain pathways that would produce metabolites with certain functions, right? And these functions are indicative of their behavior. And right, how so they... the genome would indicate... So you can tell from a genome... Because you know that there's an association between this this series of genes in in a in a in some DNA that it's associated with producing this toxin is that so you have in um, this genome you have cer certain gene clusters that encode different um, that are responsible for different metabolic pathways mm -hmm. and we can see the enzymes that are responsible for causing these metabolic pathways and you can see what is produced from those pathways mm -hmm. and it gives us an indication of what that might be used for. So it's not a specific like okay we can look at the genome yeah. and we can say definitively well, this is what they are, this is exactly what they do. But so, ex for example, if they have a gene that can fix nitrogen, mm -hmm. we probably know that these microbes are essentially in essential to their community in terms of fixing nitrogen for the rest of their communities. Does that make sense? Which nitrogen a fixation bit, yeah. is a really important function of microbes in the ocean, for Interesting. example. Oh, yeah, interesting so, nitrogen. Yeah, right. sure. So, like, we can see that there's a gene cluster that... Um, allows this microbe to fix nitrogen. And when you're talking about gene clustering, you're saying, again, I, I keep picturing a bucket of water or sand or something like that and then sequencing that. Right. So so are you then saying, well, here's 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 a, a whole DNA sequence. So we found this organism, and now we're looking in there and we're finding all these different components. Yes. And so now you have this, maybe this brand new DNA sequence that, that you say, oh, this is, an organism, and these are all the things it does. Here's another one, and this is all the things it does, and you're doing that a billion times for this bucket of seawater. So, 
I, I'm going to go over really fast the way that it works step We can also move on if this is too much detail for I can go over it stepwise, right? Okay. So I've listed it out to make gotcha. it easy. Okay, yeah. so we have an environmental sample of microbes, microbial mm-hmm. communities, right? So that bucket of water that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So we would isolate the DNA to yield a collection of metagenomic DNA that's representative of that microbial community. Yes. Okay, so once we have that, you would fragment this DNA. So you would chop it up using either restriction enzymes Uh or by mechanical shearing is a way that we do it, okay? Uh Um, These fragments of DNA from Uh our microbial communities are then ligated, so like copied or, you know, pasted, I Uh guess. They're put into a cloning vector is what we call it. Okay. So a cloning vector could be anything like a plasmid. It could be a bacterial artificial chromosome that we construct. It could be a cosmid. So this is this is what we call a vector. It's basically a vehicle with which we can take a fragment from the metagenome mm-hmm. and we can then insert it into a host. Okay. Okay, so we take that we take that vector Right, and then we transform it into a microbial host such as um, E. coli, mm-hmm. um, yeast, mm-hmm. and from there we have basically a genetically engineered microbe. And mm-hmm. with that microbe, we can manipulate it, so we can add things. And run experiments on it. Exactly, figure, oh. we can do assays. We can say, okay, what is this segment of DNA mm. producing? Okay, so what does it I encode for? Think. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, so yeah. what does it encode for? Like, so what is this little splice of DNA responsible uh-huh. for? And you can selectively find those splices and say, oh, right. this is interesting. We haven't seen this right. before. I saw this. Gosh darn. I saw this in a volcano or something over here. Or not a volcano, but yeah. I found this in a different environment in a cow's intestines, and now I'm finding it near a uh, uh, a volcanic vent in the ocean. Like, is that the idea? Like, well, sure. So that... you can do a phylogenetic analysis, right? Mm-hmm. And you can say, okay, what is this? You know, you can use the genome to identify um, the phylogeny of of um, different microbes and things of that nature. But mm-hmm. also, more specifically, you can have these. So, like these hosts, like E. coli or yeast or whatever, you've mm-hmm. transformed these ligated pieces of the environmental mm-hmm. samples. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can say, okay, I'm going to do an assay, right? I'm looking for something that is active against breast cancer, oh. okay? I can put it in, or just cancer in general, right? Sure. We have HeLa cells, which mm-hmm. is, are you familiar with HeLa cells? No, but I understand cancer. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So we put them in a Petri dish for, this is very basic, but we would yeah. put this in a pe- the, these cancer cells in a Petri dish with our... Um, genetically modified bug, right. we would see what happens. What does it do? What does okay. it do? And then we would see, let's say that it killed these cancer cells. We would say, oh my gosh, okay, so this genetic sequence that we have in this host encodes some protein, some small molecule that's active against cancer. So this is the question that I was alluding to earlier, which is how how does this type of bucket of seawater sampling and the just the absolute um, deluge of, of data, how does that turn into, oh, we have a new, a new pill that, is, that, that it can be treated against breast cancer or, or 
you know, diabetes or so, I mean, anything, something For so sure. specific. Sure. And, and I think you just described that where, well, where you're looking, it's, you're, you're sort of taking this knowledge. It sounds like it's just a very methodical, very long-term process and a, and a, a very holistic conglomeration of, of specialities of people saying, well, this is all the different, um, uh, pieces of, of genetics and, and molecules and, and all this stuff that we found in seawater and then maybe over on the cancer research side they're saying well genes react like this to various types of of these types of enzymes and compounds and 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 then does that does yeah that, so okay. it's not it's not the genes specifically that are interacting with the cancer cells no 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 yeah no i right, totally right, get okay. it yeah, yeah yeah i mean so what you mentioned in terms of like the the mass of information that we can get from metagenomics yeah. is definitely a huge issue with metagenomics and there are people that are really dedicated to finding ways to sort of catalog and make it easier to analyze these huge data sets because the yes. amount of information that you can get from a metagenomic analysis is huge it, it's got to be right yeah yeah so i mean once you have this activity that you see against breast mm. cancer. Okay, so how does that go from, oh, we see activity to a final a final drug or a final mm-hmm. compound? Mm-hmm. If you see some desired activity that you like, okay, you know this is my target. Mm-hmm. So there's something interesting with this genetic sequence, mm-hmm. right? And then you can get even more specific and isolate what exactly, what what um, promoters being used, what enzymes are being used, what all these different components are, mm-hmm. and you can leverage that to then kind of make these little micro factories that mm-hmm. produce your desired compound. And the design, and that okay, and that would be useful for early stage. Would be useful exactly. for experimentation, yep. and then later on, that's how you're synthesizing that compound. Right. So yeah. I mean, and it's important to remember that when you're talking about natural compounds. Mm. Almost 100% of the time, these compounds, as they exist in nature, cannot be consumed by humans as they exist, Mm -hmm. right? So if we found a compound that was active against breast cancer, for example, Mm -hmm. um, and it killed all the cancer cells in a Petri dish, I wouldn't be able to consume that, right? Because typically the toxicity associated with these compounds is huge. Uh And so a huge issue with drug development is mitigating that toxicity, making it safe for human consumption, Mm -hmm. making it so we, the, the toxicity isn't, isn't, (laughs) isn't, doesn't kill everything. Right. So after you produce a compound like that, typically you would have to optimize it and manipulate the structure of the compound using synthetic chemistry to make it, to make it so that it can be safe for consumption. Yes. So that's definitely not the last step. Uh It's the first step in the very early stage, right? So once you get into modifying the, the backbone of a chemical structure, that, that gets really tricky, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, Especially when we're talking about uh, drugs that are intended to permeate the blood-brain barrier, so that are intended for um, neurological diseases. Mm -hmm. That's where it gets really tricky. We get it up to the point where we create these novel lead compounds. And this is, when you say we, you're talking about uh, Argonauts. Argonauts. Right, yeah, so that's what we do. We use, utilize metagenomics to create libraries of novel lead compounds mm-hmm. that can then be further modified. So you're generating in. a database of genomic information probably associated with some metadata as well as in terms of like 
where this was found and maybe it's it's concentration in that environment is that sure i mean but we're also most more focused on creating a tangible bug like a tangible oh. product right so we have when i say a library that's a physical library oh yeah so libraries are they're usually i mean if it sounds really strange to call it that, but no, it's no, a collection. No, 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 I totally get it. Yeah. It's a collection of compounds, right? And usually when somebody says, oh, I have this library of compounds, mm-hmm. it's they're usually referring to a drawer in their freezer that has a bunch of different yeah, compounds. Yeah, what, uh, what is the state of the... Um, when yeah. you go from sample, so how we go from like a physical, let's say E. coli that has certain genes inserted into it, how we go from that to like a library that we would store. Mm -hmm. Usually these things are stored in glycerol. So you Mm. literally just pop it into glycerol and then put it into the freezer. Why why glycerol? Um, Because it allows the DNA to maintain its integrity. Is that, does that freeze it? Yes. Oh, it it freezes it in such a way that it doesn't crack or damage the structure. It maintains the integrity of the DNA, which is huge, right? Because over time, DNA degradation is a huge issue that you struggle with Mm -hmm. um, as it relates to environmental samples, especially. And that freezing process works for basically anything or it doesn't, is there certain situations where you, you say, oh, we found this, but it interacts with this E. coli in such a way, or we have to put in this viral host, and that's not going to work in our normal library. It, it, it's, it's yeah, those are all problems that oh, it is. happen. Yeah, I mean, oh. there's a variety of different problems that could happen, but usually mm-hmm. glycerol is a pretty safe bet. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty good standard. Um, mm-hmm. You might have to change the percent glycerol that you're using. So mm-hmm. we, for some of our samples, we use... Um, glycerol and seawater because they're marine samples. Mm. So when we store them, that's mm-hmm. what we use. Rather than using purified water, or DI water, we use seawater. Does that require active refrigeration? It like requires being re- frozen electric. at minus forty. Yeah. Oh, that's very right? active. Yeah. yeah. So, so what happens? So you must have some protections against like power outages and zombie apocalypses. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a fear for sure. But yeah. usually, you have enough time to. If you know that the freezer is broken, we always have more mm. than one freezer. Okay. So we can. Redundancy? Yeah, yeah. It's important. Yeah. So, like, especially when we're making our libraries, mm-hmm. we do everything in triplicate. Oh, okay. To make sure that, you know, maybe in case something happens, we always have something in a backup. So that mm-hmm. definitely makes it take three times as long uh-huh. and yeah. more expensive for materials, uh-huh. but yeah. it's so important. So, so I'm from, so- I, I'm a software engineer, and this, that, that part, anyways, is a perfect analogy to, to data storage, um, and especially like these big companies with these data centers. Yeah, you, you, you de- generally will, will not only make your, your data redundant, but you'll spread it out geographically, and you'll sure. have something in Washington State and something else in like up, upstate New York. Uh, and it does, it has all the same problems. It's like, you know, we're, we're dealing with, with milliseconds, you know, and that's considered you know, a lot of latency, but that still is like in terms of getting your email back, you know, an extra quarter of a second is long lag, but it's important to do that because we, we want to make sure that if a meteor strikes, you know, the facility in, yeah. in Washington, <laughs> yeah. that New York is, is still intact and, you know, sure. there's corporate integrity and all that stuff. Sound, so anyway, it's yeah. It's the same idea. Similar. And I mean, especially when we're talking about, um, like marine microbes, they're notoriously difficult to isolate. There's a lot of challenges associated with them. Mm. Um, and the field of metagenomics is relatively new. Um, How new? When, when I, I would say within... It's really come to the forefront since I would say like 2007, 2000, mm-hmm. 
five maybe. Um, mm -hmm. So that's considered relatively new, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of things that we do that there's just not rules for. So when I started the company, I was, you know, and rules we were, being best practices. Well, rules isn't laws. like, this is how you do X, Y, and Z. Like this is the right way to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, there's general procedures that you have to follow. And but not for safety reasons. Not for, for safety for, reasons, just for to make sure I, I, consistency. Right. And, I mean, I think yeah. people, when they think of a science, especially when we're talking about like chemistry or microbiology, there's a very rigid way to do things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's just not the case. You guys are cowboys. It's just not the Cow case. Cowgirls, you know? <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> it's, it's, so it's definitely, there's a huge learning curve. And when you're trying to be innovative with the way that you do things, you have to be really creative. And so mm. there's not like a, a rule book on how to go forward with isolating marine microbes. There's definitely like, as you said, best practices. Mm -hmm. But we've been running into problems, right? We, we aren't able to isolate the full chemical profiles that exist. Mm -hmm. um, there's problems. So we need to do things differently. Yeah. And because of that, there's things that were, you know, you just try one day and you're like, oh, hope that works, you know? Yeah. So, and I don't think people realize that with them, with science, is that it's very much a fluid, dynamic process with a lot of experimentation and creativity that goes into it, which I think is fun. I knew, I think I would have assumed that for a lot of experimentation, but yeah, I'm, a, but this also, this field also feels very industrialized and it feels, like there's a much more closer connection to commercialization, um, if that makes sense. Um, and and for that reason, I would imagine you got to go fast and you got to be on the forefront. But you're also wanting to make sure that the glycerol seawater compound that you're storing everything in is not accidentally, you know, um, you know, dissolving everything or something. You know. Right. Well, we're really lucky because. Because we're a startup and because we're so early stage and we're so small, yeah. we are fairly removed from that industrialized process. So we oh. have the opportunity to pivot, make changes with fairly little oversight, right? Mm -hmm. We're not focused on output. We're focused on creating a process that allows us to do certain things mm -hmm. that don't exist already, mm -hmm. right? So we're, more, we're, more, we're a leaner and more innovative science driven absolutely company. yeah so, you're um, way out there you're you're tip of the spear sort of right and yeah. that's and increasingly as we see um as we move into 2020 especially a lot of companies like pharmaceuticals um and ag tech yeah. um they are increasingly sourcing their innovation from smaller companies mm -hmm. right so you know as early stage research and development becomes less profitable for them, mm -hmm. um, less successful. They are insourcing and licensing, and that's kind of their innovation strategy. So mm -hmm. we're really well aligned with that strategy. That's kind of like what we do, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that's similar in tech. Right. I think it's just acquisitions, and right. you just wait until somebody... Right. Like Google just waits until somebody has figured yeah. out some problem that they're trying to solve, <laughs> and then just... Yeah, here's a hundred million dollars. Yeah, we'll just exactly. buy it. Yeah, that uh -huh. would be amazing. Yeah, I'll <laughs> good take, luck. I'll take one million of those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, uh, the other thing that I was thinking, um, going back to the metagenomic um, sampling, is and the data that's collected, is um, you might not know. There's so much. There must be so much data. Just terabytes of data from you know, and you don't know. Um, what you're looking at. It reminds me of a lot of, a lot of science and, and um, I was listening to something on, uh, regarding sunspots last night. They were just talking about historic sunspot activities and, and I think there was um, a pretty big um, solar storm back in like the mid-19th century that 
um, set like um, telegraphs on fire and stuff. And then we had just another uh, similar um, solar storm in the early aughts of 2000, like 2003 or something like that. There, it's like a Halloween episode, uh, thing, and it it, it caused the um, some some minor problems, but but the difference between the two was that in 2003 we were studying, we were actively watching the sun, and these solar storms are very periodic. There's like every 11 years or whatever, and then I think every 100 or 150 years there's like there's we think there might be a big so in terms of the monitoring, the active persistent monitoring and collecting data, we don't know what we don't know yet, and so that's where I find it interesting is that. You and, and, and your colleagues are collecting data, and then you, I'm, I'm hoping or assuming that you're storing that data in some way that is just there for posterity. So in 100 years from now, we're like, wait a minute, you know, this type of E. coli is becoming sentient and is starting to, <laughs> starting to use the Internet. <laughs> Let's go back and start monitoring, you know, you know start, yeah. start, start looking sure. through and looking for patterns, mm-hmm. looking for, for these cyclical blooms mm-hmm. of this or that and, and interacting blooms and all, you know, I mean, that's, that's where my maybe overactive imagination goes <laughs> No, certainly, like, being able to sequence an entire genome within just uh, for humans has given us so much information. It's the same thing with microbes, especially when we talk about microbes, because it's estimated, I think the statistic is something like 0.001% of microbes have been isolated from their environment. So we just know so So little. little. And especially when we're talking about the genome, that's like the the big picture, like that's the huge snapshot of the entire genome, right? But Mm -hmm. just like in humans, Mm -hmm. our DNA, our entire genome is not being expressed at all times, right? Right. So that's the same thing with microbes. It's not being, the whole thing isn't being expressed at all times. So when you look at a microbe and you take it back to the lab, Mm -hmm. and you say, and you do a metagenomic analysis and you say, okay, here's the entire genome, what's being produced, mm-hmm. right? It's probably and most likely incredibly different than what would be produced in the natural environment. Mm. So it's like, how do we... Because the bug is reacting yeah. to, to a different environment. It's right. Like, there's a lot of fluorescent light. There's, you know, extra, there's too much oxygen here, something like that. That's, yeah. Right. So especially when we're talking about, that's the huge challenge with extremophilic... Mm microbes Mm -hmm. because they're extreme environments. So the second that you remove a microbe from its original environment, Mm -hmm. it's going to change, right? Mm -hmm. It's biochemical processes are going to change. It's not interacting with the same environment, Mm -hmm. right? So there's all these changes that occur. And because of that, the chemicals they produce are different. So Mm -hmm. the science of discovering new compounds from the marine environment is largely dependent on not only location, but also how accurately you can capture the bioactivity mm. of a microbe in its natural environment. Oh, man. So, okay. Because, so, yeah, you think about it, right? So, like, okay, we're talking about extremophiles, yeah? yeah? So, we have, um, right now, what we're working with are piezophiles. So, um, pressure. Pressure, uh-huh. exactly. So, they exist under extreme pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the second that you touch them and you take them up to the deck of the ship... Mm-hmm. 
they, they explode? Or? No, right, they don't explode. But they change, right? Yeah. Because they they are they have evolved to not only exist in these extreme environments, but to thrive in these extreme environments. And oftentimes, these microbes are responsible for allowing other organisms within that little mm. ecosystem to survive. So, how are you handling that? that yeah. So that that. You're doing. Are you doing analysis at depth? Maybe. So, well, we're working on a device right now that is going to allow us to take a better snapshot of the bioactivity that I exists. I haven't signed an NDA. Yeah, don't, I know. Don't but that, yeah. So that. So we're working on a device that's going to allow us to do that better. Uh-huh. Um, but at a lab level, something that we're looking at is called transcriptomics. So the transcriptome, mm-hmm. um, which basically is a picture of all the genes that are being expressed at that moment. Mm. So can I give you an example? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so as the gene expression as it relates to humans is um, your central nervous system, um, its perception of negative social interactions um, causes the transcription of a certain gene. So Mm -hmm. it causes... um, it's stimulated by the over, an overwhelming stressful situation or stressful experience mm-hmm. um, that stimulates the release of cortisol. So the existence of cortisol in your body causes this certain gene to be expressed. Okay. So in a perfectly calm human being, that gene would not be expressed. Mm-hmm. So if I took a snapshot of the transcriptome, right. if I'm really stressed... Right. It's going to be completely different from you or yeah. from yours or from mine when I'm not stressed That's out. That's kind of, it paints a funny picture. It's like uh, these godlike aliens come down and like <laughs> abduct you and you're like in zero G and yeah. there's like blinking lights and scary faces and they're like, there's all this <laughs> this cortisol compound. These things really right. like this cortisol. Right. Uh, anyways. No, yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so unlike the genome, which is fixed, um, the transcriptome will vary according to environmental conditions, um, mm-hmm. and it just reflects the genes that are being expressed at a given time, Yeah, which means, obviously, that the chemical profile that you get is going to be, it's going to vary depending on the circumstances in which that sure. microbe exists. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a huge challenge as well. So do you, how do you capture that in a way... What do you do? Or is, are okay. these industry secrets at this point? Well, so some we, of it is we can speak really broadly. Whatever about it. you, yeah, whatever you're legally. Uh, you able. can say, okay, I have a microbe that produces my target. So I know that this microbe produces mm-hmm. X, mm-hmm. and X is I'm going to use cancer again. Okay. Anti cancer. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I know that this microbe produces X when it's in its stationary phase, mm-hmm. and it does not produce X when it's not in its stationary phase. Mm -hmm. So we would look at the transcriptome Mm -hmm. in stationary phase Mm -hmm. and not in stationary phase. Mm -hmm. And we would look at the overlap, Mm -hmm. essentially, and see what's what's different. Mm -hmm. And that would give us a better idea of what gene cluster is producing that active. Yeah, that, I thank you, that helps clarify. But then I'm also curious as to how you, how do you... So you look at the RNA. No, no, I mean, how do you physically produce those? I, I, well, for instance, there's the bacteria it's, it's, it's that behaves good. differently from a, in, at, at a high pressure right. versus on the deck of the ship. Do you, do you bring it to the deck of the ship and then reapply the pressure in order to, to simulate the environment? Or so that some seems people like, do, oh, okay. right? So um, one of the professors that um, I'm working with at Scripps <clears throat> Institute of Oceanography, mm-hmm. um, he, ha- he has a pressurized system in his lab mm-hmm. that allows him to look at these um, piezophilic 
microbes mm-hmm. under pressure. Yeah. So they're still stimulated by that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so typically when you take a microbe, microbe out of its desired or natural yeah. environment, you can put it right back and it'll continue to oh, okay. produce those. So a lot yeah. of, that's what makes it expensive to focus on extremophilic yeah. microbes is that they require these extreme conditions to replicate mm-hmm. their natural environment, right? Like extreme pressure, extreme temperatures, extreme salt, acid-based, sulfur, whatever. Um, It's very expensive. So if you instead focus on, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to focus on the bug, but I'm going to focus on its genes instead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It makes it a little bit easier. I see. Right? Yeah. I see what you're saying. And then you can, yeah, you can do some inferences. Yeah. 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 Right. That makes sense. Okay. So, um, the majority of, um, drugs on the market today that are derivatives of plant molecules or as synthetic Uh derivatives of plant molecules are usually derived from what we call secondary metabolites of the plant or organism that we're focusing on. So a secondary metabolite is an organic compound produced by an organism that is not directly involved in normal growth, development, or reproduction by the organism. Okay. So they are not necessary for the survival of the organism. Mm -hmm. Okay, but so it's usually a byproduct of biochemical processes. Um, So, and these chemicals can be used for protection, competition, species interaction, and things like that, but they often are not for survival, and they engage in feedback mechanisms that cause different expressions of genes. So if we have, let's say, like an excess of a certain metabolite being produced, it tells that cell, Mm -hmm. stop, slow down. Okay. Right? It's like a feedback mechanism. Like, we're going to stop producing that. That's the secondary That That's metabolite. like a feedback mechanism. And so oh, that's, okay. that's yeah. one of the functions of it. But traditionally, scientists are really interested oh. in those secondary metabolites because they yeah, tend to have activities that are potent and relevant to humans as well. So uh-huh. examples... Like that suppression activity? Yeah, the, that suppression yeah. activity, the, um, the toxic activity, right? The cytotoxicity, um, so toxicity to the cell. Mm-hmm. Um, examples of things that you probably already know are the statin drugs. So like uh, lovastatin, novastatin. It sounds familiar, so, but I'm not in pharmacy. Okay. Yeah, so those are, and you don't need to know yet because obviously your cholesterol is not bad. Yeah, those, oh, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, so the statin drugs are these blockbuster um, drugs that mm-hmm. are used to control your cholesterol, and mm-hmm. they're a fungal secondary metabolite. Um. Um, and so manipulations of that secondary metabolite have yielded different statin drugs on the market. So this Mm. one secondary metabolite, Mm -hmm. you can modify it and make different activities. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I get it. So that's one example. Um, You've got erythromycin, Mm -hmm. bacitracin, um, atropine. All of these are secondary metabolites and derivatives of natural compounds. Um, Prealt is a really interesting example. Mm Mm-hmm. It comes from the cone snail. Have you, you? Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. Back to the cone snail. Yeah, yeah. And it's just interesting because it's a thousand times more potent than morphine without the addictive qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just really interesting the things wow. that you can get from nature, right? Like the idea that nature can come up with solutions that would have never been discovered in lab. Like evolution has already created these solutions. This you know? is what I was just going to ask is why? This is a naive, intentionally naive question, but why are we, why are we literally just digging in the dirt to find these things like it seems like a weird intuitively it's like medical science is like we're having trouble with breast cancer go look in sea mud and <laughs> grind up snails 
That's a great place. Have we looked at the snail saliva <laughs> yet? So Not funny. yet. <laughs> Sarah's working on it. <laughs> so why, why? Yeah, well, maybe. So there's yeah. limitations in lab, right? We, in the last 20 years or so, we've observed limitations in terms of protein engineering, um, combinatorial chemistry, mm. synthetic chemistry. There's just yeah. limitations. And in terms of um, synthesizing molecules, sorry, this is going to sound a little bit technical, but when mm. we're talking about synthesizing these really complex molecules that need to produce a desired activity, mm-hmm. it's really difficult to synthesize certain products. Mm. We have chiral centers, mm-hmm. which are really difficult to do when we're talking about natural products. There's oftentimes multiple chiral centers. There are these huge molecules, really complicated, that we just could never really produce in lab on our own. Not to mention the idea that a human brain would be able to come up with that idea, mm-hmm. that specific solution, yeah, right? exactly. So that I... We are increasingly looking to nature for solutions because it provides access to this unique genetic and chemical diversity that we can't produce in lab, mm-hmm. right? It's, it, seems, it seems like, and again, this is going to be oversimplification, um, uh, but it seems like it's, an, it's a form of, gosh, creativity and brainstorming and just look, trying to get better ideas, but it's also in, it, it also inherently incorporates the industrialization, like the, the process of fabricating that. And you have like you're, you're using nature, using the molecular, the molecular machines as little tiny factories, and that's that's where I find it. That's what's like totally a little mind blowing. Totally. Yeah. No, I mean the idea of looking to nature for solutions is not new. Right. right? Like we see that with Eastern medicine is very right. incredibly inspired and, and driven by natural mm-hmm. substances, right? And mm-hmm. then we there was you know, in the nineties we went to the rainforest to try to look for cures for cancer and things like mm-hmm. that. Like that was very much the trend. Mm-hmm. Um, and we exhausted that. We destroyed that environment, which is a totally different topic. And a whole nother reason to, to go right? and sample the heck out of it. Right. It's, gone. it's yeah. just, yeah, infuriating. But so yeah. we, now the ocean is kind of like the last frontier, right? And it's oh. 70% of our planet around, yeah. right? It dictates a huge percent of our planet's processes and is responsible for all natural phenomena, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's thought that, or it's widely agreed upon that the microbes in the ocean mm-hmm. are responsible for a lot of the natural processes that exist. Mm-hmm. Um, they are responsible for a huge amount of biomass. Mm-hmm. Um, they're it's just a really important and integral part of our planet, right? The ocean. What we're limited by is access, right? Mm-hmm. That's something maybe that's the that's probably why it's still available, right? Yeah. Is because there's just the majority of the ocean exists as a place that humans just can't access, mm-hmm. right? And the coolest places, the places that have the most, you know, extreme or the most um, interesting chemical diversity to offer, are typically places like sea, like deep sea vents. Deep sea, you know, hydrothermal environments, Why? cold seeps. Why is that? Because the they're like? so extreme, right? Mm-hmm. That the microbes and the animals that live there mm-hmm. have had to adapt to these environments, and in doing so, they create a really unique set of chemicals mm-hmm. or a unique set of adaptations that allow them to live there. Is it biodiversity? I mean, is it diversity of solutions? Yeah. So is we have exactly, and things that we haven't seen before, right? right. So in in the past, our focus on the marine environment has been fairly limited to um, like scuba diving in mm-hmm. Hawaii, 
at a 20 meter depth. I mean, for multiple reasons. One, it's easier. Mm-hmm. Also, it's just sexier, right? <laughs> like we're going to go find a new sea sponge yeah. and we're going to go diving in Panama. Like it's going to be beautiful in the Maldives, whatever. Yeah. It's that's when we're talking about academic research. Yeah. That's where people go because it's easier, it's cheaper, it's more glamorous, and that's just how it works. I want to go to the Maldives. I'd rather do that than... (laughs) I know. But so that, we're limited by access, and that, if you think about it, because animals and microbes are so influenced by the environment in which they live, if we're collecting samples from all of these similar environments, the chemical profiles that we get are going to be fairly similar, Right. Right? Because they're able to photosynthesize. We've got things that are able to photosynthesize, right? They've got sunlight. They mm-hmm. have warm temperatures. They ha- mm-hmm. Blah, blah, blah. Right. Right. So their all, conditions it's, it's, are similar. Yeah. But what if we went down to a sea vent, a deep sea vent, mm-hmm. with extreme temperatures, with super sul- like a super sulfuric environment, with a ton of marine snow, which is essentially debris that mm-hmm. falls from the surface. Like, what does that look like? like mm-hmm. What does it take for an animal or a microbe to be able to live in that environment? What chemicals or pathways has it adapted to allow mm-hmm. it to thrive? And I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Okay. Why can't you simulate that diversity? That that diversity. Why couldn't you take an E. coli bacteria out of a snail's harpoon and and put it in in um, in a laboratory and then subject it to a thousand different extreme conditions. One of them you're bombarding with UV. The next one you're bombarding with maybe gamma. The next one you're you're putting under extreme pressure. Maybe a gradient of pressures, gradient of temperatures, and then combination. You know what I mean? Sure. No, that's a like, really good point. And we call that a microevolution, and people have done that. People do that. Oh, okay. That's a, that's a common thing Maybe to that's do. where we end up when we've destroyed the environment. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, but people do that, um, and it definitely does produce really interesting things. Um, mm-hmm. But that's... Let's say you have a, a microbe that you see has anti-cancer activity, right? And mm-hmm. you do a screen of the compounds that are produced that may be responsible for this activity. Mm-hmm. You see maybe a huge percentage of that of a certain compound and a little percentage of a different compound. Mm-hmm. We, how do I say this? that will change as a result of interactions with its environment, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, doing things like that, I think, is, it has its limits Mm -hmm. in terms of what we can discover because it's not 100% or it's not necessarily accurate of its original environment, right? Because if we're talking about an Arctic environment, right, it's not just being exposed to cold, right? It's not, it... It's also a... What else, yeah, what else is... What, so, okay, yeah. it's not... Um, let's. I know use, it's a, I know the environment has a lot of different survival also pressures. What it's, okay, so here, let's use an example um, of one of our expeditions that we went on. Mm-hmm. We went to um, the Gulf of Mexico, and we went to natural oil and gas seeps, mm-hmm. um, which was really cool. That would be cool. Yeah, it was really awesome. Um, the... They, those environments are really, really well known to be associated with hydrogen sulfide, mm-hmm. okay? And so you have all these really interesting mechanisms that the microbial mats called Begiatoa, mm-hmm. as well as the microbes in sediment, and they help fix this sulfur, right? They help do fix. all of these these processes that allow not just the microbes to live and the bacteria to thrive, mm-hmm. but other organisms, like you have mussels that right. bacteria live on, and they help the mussels live, right? And so what are they producing? Like, what's that interaction it's with It's not the E. coli sitting there feeding off of 
hydrocarbons or, or whatever. Sugar. It's, it's, we're it's, not just feeding it sugar. It's we're, the sugar that it produces that right. the other thing eats and it comes in. It, so it's, it's, it's very much the yeah. community right, yeah. in which it lives. That's a huge component. And it's one that we're not able to really accurately represent in right. lab. And like, that's the challenge, right? Yeah. So how do we access that? How do we get that picture? How do we, how do we simulate that? Yeah. Like what, so metagenomics brings us closer to that, mm-hmm. but there's still obviously it's limitations and mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. definite room for improvement as it relates to being able to access the, sam- the, the microbes that exist in those environments. Yeah. So now we're going to do a segment called uh, Science Gossip in which our guest scientist um, tells us a little about just anything that's on their mind, something that they've read recently. Um, you know, if they just gossip about somebody in particular, we can get real <laughs> nasty here. If we, this is kind of open, open forum here. So, but Sarah, so what, what have you heard? What do you, okay, what do you have so to share? Okay, so something that I've been thinking about a lot lately that I've been discussing with some people, and this may just be a hyper-paranoid scientist perspective, mm-hmm. right? That's stuck still. Sorry, yeah, there, yeah, sorry. Sorry. This may still be me being stuck in the academia mentality, right? Where Mm -hmm. everybody's looking over their shoulders. But I mean, something that is really interesting when you're talking about doing innovative science and research Mm -hmm. is protecting yourself, right? And the second, within industry, the second that you publish something, you can consider it gone, right? Because everybody has access to it now, right? Uh I mean, it's yours still, but Uh anyways. So there is this idea that... um, or there's rumors that if you publish a paper, especially within the synthetic biology community where a lot of um, big names are kind of grasping at straws Mm. to come up with novel ideas, Mm -hmm. um, there's just rumors that go around about people stealing ideas through paper submissions, um, denying the paper submission, and then creating their own spinoff. Yeah. Right, but there's no way to definitively quantify that, and you can't really accuse anybody of doing that. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I'm, but it's something that you that I think about a lot when I'm thinking about publishing a paper is that um, it makes it so easy for mm-hmm. somebody to incorporate that idea and maybe improve on it, or yeah, you know. So it's something that definitely has to be think. It's it's an impropriety that I'm sure occurs within the field and I know a couple yeah and I know a couple of my colleagues I struggled with that and so we're pretty certain that can be super frustrating I wonder though it seems like I have two thoughts on that one is that that is um an expression of of uh competition um but it I also am a little not surprised but you know it it seems like that type of information sharing is is necessary for a healthy scientific community um so then it's but maybe there's a balance that has to be struck and i mean yeah no it's that's a huge there's so many points within that one is that sharing of information within um like innovative research and academia is a huge problem specifically Mm -hmm. for that reason because people don't want their ideas stolen but again Mm -hmm. like if you don't have that level of communication with your peers Mm -hmm. it definitely inhibits the product, like innovation, of right? Course. In my opinion, but in wait, how does it inhibit? I'm right, sorry. So if you have, if you have, um, if you're working, you could be working on two different things that are very complementary or that one that aids in another, right? Mm-hmm. It's that mm-hmm. idea of 
um, crowdsourcing information because mm -hmm. everybody should have access to this knowledge because mm -hmm. you never know what it's going to produce, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody may be working on a catalyst mm -hmm. in the inorganic chemistry field mm -hmm. that could have applications as a biocatalyst that you use in your process. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you just never know. So there's know. benefit in being open in with being the information. Open. Sure, yeah. certainly. Um, but in these in this science field, name means a lot, mm -hmm. and publishing means a lot, and getting funding means a lot, right? So if you're a big guy, there's a lot of pressure on you mm -hmm. to continue your reputation for success and for innovation. Mm -hmm. Now, after a certain point, as with everybody, you get older, you slow down, you mm -hmm. know, like it's maybe you lose touch, maybe you're not as involved. Mm -hmm. What do you do? Like, how do you how do you stay relevant within the community, right? right? And so, if you're a little guy that came up with this really innovative research and yeah. you publish it, or and it gets denied or it's published, and then a bigger guy says that's mm -hmm. a really good idea, yeah, and then they big fish eats a little, little right? fish, right? And yeah. that's just how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. And I I feel like this is this sounds like uh, you could even run it through run by an economist like it, it makes me think this is a, a result of a capitalist society and I mean where is the I mean where's the motivation in capitalist capitalism is coming from self-preservation and self-promotion um, and so this reputation that you're talking about feeding into um, that's that's your, your your entire you know their their um, elevated um, uh, income is based on that and how do they how do they how do they uh, feed that? And then it also makes me think of like the it's, there's also almost something inevitable about it in that they it's just so easy and and there's there's probably almost no recourse. There so is no recourse. Would, no, absolutely. It, yeah. I mean, you'd be surprised at the lengths that if we're talking specifically about academia, mm -hmm. like you'd be surprised at the lengths that academics and professors have gone mm -hmm. to maintain or to enhance their reputation mm -hmm. like all the way up to fraud to legitimate fraud when we're talking mm -hmm. about publishing papers and, and they're very these are like that's very well-known cases of that going on um or that have gone on in the past and every every grad student always takes an ethics class mm -hmm. like in at least um in my program you have to take an ethics class and mm -hmm. that's something that we talked about a lot is mm -hmm. um is that okay like what lengths do people go to mm-hmm so what's the what is the the response? If is it is it self policing? Is it legislated? Is it you know does it become like right. a form of, of possession? Well, so at this at the moment, how it works is that you have um, a couple lines of defense mm -hmm. um, in terms of spreading like disseminating your new ideas, mm -hmm. and it has to go through a like a review reviewer panel people that look at your results, mm -hmm. look at your information and see if this is something that's viable, that's valid, that's mm -hmm. reproducible, um, mm -hmm. things like that. But also it just, um, there's a lot of peer monitoring as well that goes on with that. So that's yes. a good thing. But it also, um, when it gets down to it, mm -hmm. I think that it's a lot easier to get away with than of one course. would imagine. Yeah, well, that's... Falsifying results or, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, just to make it sound a little bit more attractive to maybe get published in science or nature. Now, falsifying the results, that sounds like a different 
That sounds different. People do it all the time. No, I know. It, oh, no, I'm not saying it's... I'm just well, saying that... I'm just that's, using it as an analogy. Like, it oh, happens. Oh, oh, like, yes. Okay, I see what you're saying. Things that people do... Um, yeah, unethical behavior right, right, in order right. to promote your... your right. Your, yeah. Yeah. And it may not come that. from a place of... Um, they might not be doing it consciously? Yeah, well, they might not... It's not coming from a... What was... I was just watching the documentary on Theranos and mm-hmm. Elizabeth Holmes. And mm-hmm. they insist... One of the guys in there insists that, you know, the means... For her, the means justify the ends because she was so certain that what she was doing was for the greater good, right? So I, it's the same idea mm-hmm. with research. You... Mm-hmm know that your idea is good, right? Like there's merit in your ideas, right? Mm-hmm. And so if that means maybe just fudging the data a little bit mm-hmm. so that you can get people to know about what you're doing and get people excited and interested in funding and blah, 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 mm-hmm. so that you eventually can execute in the way that you imagine, it's fine. It's for the it's for your end goal. And you know that your yeah. end goal mm-hmm. is good. Uh, what's right? the quote from American Beauty? Um uh, denial is a powerful thing or, so, you know, <laughs> never yeah. underestimate the power totally. of denial. Yeah. yeah, no, for sure. And, yeah. and with Elizabeth Holmes, that was Well, she, that was, <laughs> but, that's maybe, yeah, well, we right. never know. We don't I don't know, know anything we about know. but I know, yeah, it's fun to pick on people who, <laughs> who I have no It's connection. an interesting documentary. It's an interesting test case because you can certainly see, at least within the startup or small, mm-hmm. um, like early stage companies, mm-hmm. how... A single lie can really snowball. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, and coming from that same place of, you know, just starting off or mm-hmm. being really early stage in our research program, mm-hmm. having this really clear idea mm-hmm. um, of what you intend to do versus mm-hmm. what you can actually do. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's really... Well, you know, it's interesting because um, in startups and business, commerce, um, you know, there there is just... It's not ubiquitous, but it's it's just very common for people to manipulate and stretch the truth and what I mean that's 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 people trying to get a competitive advantage in right. their environment. Um, and then when you but when you take those practices into a purely scientific and academic realm, then it's unethical and what you know you shouldn't be doing that. But but it's interesting. I think also in terms of being a startup founder, um, it's it would be what was unethical about her situation. In particular, was that she had she had other people's money, right? So if you're she a founder, right? exactly, and continued to right. do it, and was and was was pretty obviously very consciously doing it. Well, I mean, wait, the question is, what, did she believe her own hype? Right? Did she drink the Kool Aid? Right. Is that what it was, or was she consciously doing that? That's two totally different exactly. scenarios. Because you know, like as a scientist, founder, founder, scientist, whatever, yeah. you totally are. You live eat and breathe what you're doing. And mm-hmm. so it's so easy to lose sight of the reality in which Absolutely. you're existing. Do you know what I mean? But it's also fun. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to pursue some entre- entrepreneurial opportunities. And, um, you know, it's it's pretty, every couple of weeks I'll wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. And yeah. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> Why did I leave my job at this big company? Yeah. I'm such an idiot. But so you have to maintain that sense of, it's a little bit of denial and, a, and this kind of forced optimism. Totally. That startup, you know what I mean? And I think as a scientist, you got to do that too. You got to, sure. you're, 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 um, I like to, I'd love to, and this is going to be my first attempt at explaining this metaphor, but I think of science and, and, and the topology of human, of human behavior um, in terms of scientific endeavor and, and even business um, startups and stuff as an anthill. 
and we're, we're all spreading out from this anthill, and each individual ant is basically spending its life, you know, just wandering in circles or, or some sort of pattern, and we're, we're defining, we're describing, we're understanding our environment. And in science and, and business, um, you know, it's, it's an abstract environment, and in particular with science, you're saying, well, I found this, I found this, what does this do, you know? Um, and so we, as the ants, we have a, we have not only a duty, but it's our, it's our inherent nature to, to, um, to explore. Right. And try um, and understand the world around us. Exactly. Right. And, and so, um, and, and we, as the ant need to, um, we have to, to push forward. We don't know what's out there. If we did, that would, that's not exploration. And, and this, the species would, would really quickly starve. Um, but instead, you know, we push for, and what is the nature of that? If we didn't have hope, if we didn't have some sort of um, guess, informed guess, that there would be nothing to, to seek, you know, there, there's no, so, so it's not inherently bad, you know, to have, to have that, but it can, it can get when it's like, in, in, in a lot of these cases where you're like, okay, you, you're, you clearly have been proven wrong, and yet <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're exactly. still put, and you're still out there asking for more resources. You know, you're you're a false prophet. You right. Well, to, there's you know. that really fine line between wow, this person is motivated, this person is driven to like make the dream happen, versus okay, well now you're just like lying. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Because what's that story? Oh gosh, I can't remember. It's not Bill Gates, was it? I don't. Who? What did? Who you mean? they? It, the the idea. It's they went and pitched the idea to like a hundred different people and everybody said no. Mm-hmm. And then they went to 101 or something and like they said, said yes. yes. That's like, and it's like that's, most founder stories right, ever. Yeah. yeah. It's like at what point do you take a step back and say, okay, maybe. Exactly. This isn't the Keep right. getting rejected. Keep right. Rejected. Yeah. Right. No, that's exactly. Am but I see, lying that's... to myself? Do I not have an accurate perception of reality? Like what, you know, what is, you know, the... I find it fascinating that, 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 um, analogy is is actually anonymous because it shows how how apocryphal it is and how it's an archetype in your consciousness. Yeah, that, it is, and that's exactly right. It totally you is. You just need this. Where do you draw the line? And and I think maybe the diversity in in in, in Homo sapien um, 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 appetite for that risk is has been bred into us for totally. for fifty thousand years. You totally. know, like that's what we need. That's part of the ant hill. Some ants need to stay back and protect the home, and others need to go wide, go far and wide. So, anyways, that was that went way off topic, but that's that was a really fun. Good, yeah. That was a really good end point. <laughs> right, that yeah. is, that's great. All right, I think I don't know. I think let's end it here. I yeah, think, I Sarah. Think so too. Thank, Thank you, you so much for being my fun. inaugural guest. This was super fun. Yeah. Was yeah. Fun. So hopefully we'll see you. We'll hear from you soon and, and often. I think. We're going to see how this turns out. I think you might be uh, kind of co-host and partner. So this is a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you, Sean. And that's it. That's the inaugural episode of the Headful Science Podcast. 
It's in the can, wrapped with a big old bow. Thank you so much, and we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we had creating it. I want to give a massive thank you to my inaugural guest and, spoiler alert, hopeful future co-host Sarah Mishik for all her wisdom, insights, and burgeoning friendship. Thank you, Sarah. I'd also like to give a big shout-out and thank you to the Creative Space, where we recorded this episode, an artist collective named You Belong Here, located in the City Heights neighborhood of my beloved San Diego. Thanks, Nick, and everyone at You Belong Here for making us feel even more welcome than just what was implied by their kind nomenclature. If you like this episode of Headful Science, please subscribe, stay tuned, and find us on Instagram at Headful Science or online at headfulscience.com. That's Headful with one L, not twos, as in Headful and not Headful of. Or send us an email at contact at headfulscience.com. Thanks again, guys. Now, go get yourself a big old head full of whatever it is you're passionate about today. All right? Bye-bye.